Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 51 of Her Story. This is your host, Cassidy Reed, and today my guest is Kaylee Miller. Kaylee is a violist with the Pacific Northwest Ballet, and she's also a personal trainer, yoga, and Pilates instructor in Seattle, Washington. She combines her love for movement and music through her work with her blog, Musicians Health Collective, and works with private clients both online and in person. As a movement instructor, she has been teaching for over nine years and completed her comprehensive Pilates training with physical therapist Karen Sanzo in Dallas, Texas. In this episode, Kaylee and I discuss the mental, emotional, and physical health of musicians, her training and research, social media, and other topics. So you can check out her work at musicianshealthcollective.com. Please like and share this episode with your friends. Please also make sure you're following us on all of our social media accounts, including Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, you can send your bio to musicherstorypod at gmail.com. And I will see you next Monday. Kaylee Miller, and I am a violist and movement educator in Seattle, Washington, and I am a member of the Pacific Northwest Ballet Orchestra and a former member of the San Antonio Symphony. Excellent. I'm so happy you're here and you're here to talk about all your amazing um, projects and your um, experiences as well. So just to get a little baseline so everybody gets to know a little bit more about you first, what got you started in music when you were young? I don't totally remember. Uh, I took piano lessons when I was four and I didn't like it. I do remember that part of it. Uh, I did a group piano lessons and I I just, I don't particularly remember enjoying it, but I did it for a year and then there were no lessons uh, for a year after that. And then my parents tell me, because I I literally just don't remember this at all, that somebody played violin and show and tell in kindergarten and I said I wanted to play violin. I have no recollection of this. Apparently it happened. So at my sixth birthday, I got violin lessons. Um, I played violin throughout childhood, youth orchestra, all the things. But I wasn't on, I would say not like a super elite path. So I played competitive tennis. I took art lessons. Like I was more well-rounded than I think many people in music. And um, I was never on this like mission to become a world soloist or anything like that. But uh, in high school, I did apply for college and I knew by then that I really wanted to play viola, but uh, I continued with violin um, because I liked my violin teacher. And then my plan was to switch or do both in college, which I did. And then I went on to um, college and music. So that's kind of the short answer to that. Awesome. Yeah, I I can relate to the whole um, kind of just being into a bunch of things as a kid. I think for me, like I was I was into a bunch of stuff, too. I was really in art. I did sports. I was kind of involved in a lot of things. And so like kind of almost made me like have a little bit of imposter syndrome when I got older because it seemed like the kids that were really excelling at music were the kids were like music was like everything they did. And I was sitting there going, am I doing something wrong? Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, yeah. It's not, 
it's definitely something like music you need to devote, you know, a lot of your time and your energy to. But when I was younger, I always felt like, oh, should I be just completely focused on music? Is that what I'm supposed to be doing? Can I be a well-rounded person and succeed in music as well? There's always a little bit of questioning there. Uh, for sure. And I actually remember asking, I asked my parents if I could go to Interlochen for high school and they just said no, <laughs> uh, which I, I don't think is a bad thing, actually. And, and I think it's because it was very expensive. I mean, it's very expensive to go to school there um, or to go to Walnut Hill or any of the other conservatories that are structured that way. But I, um, I don't regret going to normal life. And yeah, there are positives and benefits of going to an institution like that um, for high school, for sure. And everybody just has to do, you know, what's best for them in that situation. What I would like to talk about next is sort of your collegiate experiences, because you said you ended up going to school for music. Can you talk a little bit about what those experiences were like for you? Were they mainly positive, negative, grab bag? What was that like? I'd say mostly positive, but I started at a different school and I transferred after one year because my experiences were negative. So I would say my time um, at the New England Conservatory was great. I studied with Carol Rodlin. She's wonderful. I really enjoyed my time there. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's where I have a bachelor's degree from. And I also have a double degree actually in music history. And I, I would say overall, my experiences at that school were really great. And I think that school has done a better job than many in terms of having classes of different genres for conservatory students in terms of what's available. So I was able to take classes in uh, Hindustani music and I was able to write papers on film music and take a class on the role of gender in music. And so, you know, that was a while ago. I'm older than you. So that was, you know, 14, 12 years ago. I, I think they were doing well then. I'm sure many schools have caught up to them, but I actually had a really challenging time when I went to Eastman for my master's because the master's degree music history was really boring. It was entirely period review, meaning if you think of the Grout textbook, Baroque classical romantic modern. So it didn't matter that I had a degree in music history or that I had taken doctoral classes. I still had to sit through a certain number of those, even though I, I passed all my placement tests. So I was really, I actually didn't enjoy my time at Eastman that much in comparison to my time at NEC. Mm -hmm. um, and I think partially because NEC gave you a lot more flexibility in terms of electives. There were a lot of elective classes for undergrads. It wasn't something you had to like earn after passing a test. You did your, you know, like freshman expository music history, and then you could take a class on the history of the Requiem. You could take a class on how to integrate improvisation music education. And so I, I really, I think that more programs like that would be great for students in the sense that music history or music theory, I mean, this is true for music theory too. I don't, I don't necessarily know that following this old model of going through history chronologically for like two years is necessarily the most beneficial for people's learning. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, I just did better when it was no surprise, self-motivated learning about topics I was excited about. So I think that's something that I noticed just in comparing the two school experiences is that my experiences at NEC had a lot more, freedom in terms of what I wanted to take and what I was able to select as classes and, and courses. And what I took in my master's degree was more prescribed and I didn't have a lot of flexibility. And even in the doctoral classes, even not being in the doctoral program, there weren't necessarily the same 
depth and I'd say quirkiness of classes that I had as a, as an undergrad, which was really tough mm -hmm. for me. Yeah, I, I do agree with that. It's as a current graduate student at Eastman, I do think it's very, very structured and there's not too much wiggle room mm -mm. Um, for that exploration piece like you were talking about. Um, and I, I definitely noticed that between my undergrad and my graduate work for sure. And that kind of, I feel like just reading about you and your career, I feel like that's kind of how you have formed your career because you have done something that's not super common in combining this idea of the importance of movement and physical and mental health with music in helping and assisting people. And that's not necessarily something that's like dead set a career that's just established in music. You've kind of found your own path and found this niche that needed to be filled, frankly. And I think that that kind of must have influenced you in a way of, you know, learning that, hey, like, I like this explorative piece. And I like kind of figuring out my own path. Sure. And I think part of it, uh, so I'm the I'm the child of a retired elementary educator, but I, I do have some experience with just different education philosophies and like, mm -hmm. Rudolf Steiner and Montessori, and I am not by any means an early child expert. But many of these concepts have been around for a long time, like 100 years and looking at the way that children learn is through play and exploration and some of those principles still apply very well to adults and wow. many of those principles also show up when we start talking about trauma and trauma formed trauma informed practices so uh, you can think about that in the context of music or movement or yoga or anything but when people have autonomy over their bodies or over their learning experience in any way in any genre that affects their experience profoundly. So some of the things I've talked about is if you're a music student, whether you're 12 or you're 24, sometimes you have no choice over the rep you play. You play through the book, you play for a list, like you don't have a lot of choice. Some teachers don't even allow you to choose pieces for your recital. And that was not my experience with my primary teacher, Carol. Um, she definitely wanted to make sure I played the concertos, I played viola, there, there's really only like three that are big and then whatever else. <laughs> so we definitely need to get through the standards, but I always played music that I liked uh, in the course of a semester. Like I might do something I didn't like that much and then I'll do something else I really enjoy. Mm -hmm. But I did have a fair amount of autonomy in that experience and it was a really positive experience and I didn't know until you know, talking to friends years later, they were like, oh no, I'm, you know, slogging through this Paganini and I hate it. And it's because my teacher says I have to do it. And that's a whole other conversation, especially for violin, which is, are we requiring people to do something that they will never actually do in real life? Which I think um, is a problem a little bit with violin repertoire in particular, wow. which is uh, for people that aren't familiar with Paganini, it's just ridiculous pyrotechnics. And some people are great at them and some are not. Mm -hmm. But the chances of you as a violinist, whether you're uh, an educator or a quartet musician or a symphony musician, the chances of you performing a Paganini caprice in the real world are probably pretty slim because hopefully if you're going to play a recital, you'd pick something that you like more than that or that's more musically fulfilling than like a page of octaves and like very large stuff. So that's a whole other thing. But I, this whole idea of autonomy is really, really important. And I think when I look back on the educational experiences, both academic and musical that were the most rewarding and that I got the most out of, there was a component of me being motivated to pursue it. And I think that's really important. 
Yeah, and, and you you brought up the good point of um, selecting repertoire and having some autonomy over what you choose to learn. And I think that can be directly applied to like K-12 education as well. Like when kids are more involved in the choices that are made in the classroom of what they are learning and how they are learning, there's much more positive experience all the way around. And I think that uh, applies anywhere, any age group for sure. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, we were talking a little bit about how you have taught and you have this philosophy of relating movement to music. So what kind of, we we talked about this whole collegiate experience with music, but what kind of drew you to getting your teacher training in yoga and Pilates and all these methods that you're using um, through movement? What kind of drew you to take on that training? There are a couple different strands, I think, that come together. Uh, the first strand is that I, I always enjoyed sports as a kid. I, I did play tennis pretty enthusiastically throughout childhood and was varsity and all the things. And there was definitely a hole in my movement when I went to college. I didn't really know what to do once that was done because, you, you know, you finish your fall tennis season in November and then I had nothing else to really like do, which was unfortunate. So. I, like many people in college, did mindless uh, exercise on the elliptical through most of my undergrad. And I would like read a trashy magazine and like watch TV and because that's what was provided as education. I mean, in terms of like (laughs) what we learned about fitness, um, women weren't encouraged to lift weights and, you know, you just like got on some random elliptical machine and called it a day and then you got your cardio and then you went home. Um, So that's the kind of uh, I'd say intro model I was given to wellness from the universe and from magazines. And so I started doing yoga because a friend was doing it and was like, I think you'll really like it. You really like this teacher. And, uh, and I did really enjoy it. And so my senior year of college, I did a lot of yoga. I kind of went from zero yoga to tons of yoga. And, uh, and I found that really beneficial. And I think I was still doing mindless elliptical from time to time, but um, less so. And I found that practice really, really helpful initially because I I didn't really have anything else. I I was not aware of what Pilates was. I was afraid of strength training. Uh, There were only men in the strength area. And if you went to the strength part of the gym, you would probably be mansplained, which I definitely had that experience with um, about how to use the equipment or, you know, told to get off the equipment because they were going to use it. So (laughs) yoga kind of filled this void for a while. Yeah, And then I had a bike accident my senior year and uh, had some knee pain. And so I really was just uh, walking and doing yoga for a few years and um, still was afraid of strength training. I probably, I mean, I did like rowing and biking and, and elliptical and uh, lots of walking. And so I, that was really the, the movement that drew me in, which was yoga. And my teacher, um, Carol, is now at Juilliard, but she's one of the, the, I would say the proprietor, not proprietors, but like, she's one of Karen Tuttle's students and she's one of the big advocates for Carol Tuttle, Karen Tuttle's work, which is rooted in a somatic awareness in the sense that your body is part of your experience in music making. Uh, so your, your body is addressed in terms of how you set up your instrument, how you breathe, your connection to the floor. So there was a somatic influence to how I was learning the viola in school. Yoga was helping that. And then 
once I was done with school, I needed some way to kind of tether all of that together. Uh, so that's kind of what led me to become a yoga teacher. And then eventually, because I did my first yoga teacher training 10 years ago, eventually I started to just realize I was curious, not solely just about yoga, but about actually movement and movement science and much more than just yoga itself, which is totally, I mean, some people are only into yoga. That's totally fine. But I knew at a certain point that I was actually just genuinely curious about all facets of movement science and kinesiology and that I didn't just want to teach yoga. Yeah. And I, I think that a lot of people kind of don't realize how much benefit you can receive from, you know, studying movement and your body and doing this training that you're talking about when it comes to being a musician. I mean, mm -hmm. especially a string player, um, you have a lot of movement going on with your instrument, but I've even noticed for myself, um, I am not a professional yogi by any means. I do yoga casually, but even just being more in check with my body and what I'm doing and just being healthy with stretching and really making myself feel relaxed even before I practice at the beginning of the day has made my approach so much easier. Mm -hmm. It's relieved a lot of tension that I was already feeling like before going into the practice room and things like that. So even just being just more in check and in tune with what's going on with your body, how's your body feeling that day has been so helpful to me. Yeah. And I think for most people, whatever uh, movement they're drawn to, whether it's yoga, whether it's Feldenkrais, whatever, I think if you can have a movement that helps you refine your awareness, that's great. It doesn't have to be yoga. It's just something that helps you as a musician become more aware of your body, which can help you make better movement with your instrument. You just want some kind of tool to sort of continuing to understand the sensations you feel in your body and kind of refine your understanding of how you play your instrument and also how you teach, which is really important. Yeah. And so can we talk a little bit about what you do as a professional, as a person that, you know, is passionate about movement and music being intertwined? Sure. So I think for context for folks, I, I am comprehensively trained in Pilates and I have uh, quite a few yoga trainings, but I'm actually not teaching much yoga on the internet these days because of COVID. But, mm. um, and then I have kettlebell training and personal training uh, certifications. So the clients I work with are not necessarily musicians. And uh, so I just finished a client in the last hour, normal human being, um, we work on some combination of strength and Pilates and uh, vestibular stuff. But part of my interest in general is, is neuro, I'd say neuro-based fitness or working with neurological conditions as well. So some of my clients uh, have had a stroke, have vestibular issues, have different specific neurological considerations like Parkinson's and things like that. So I have a, a personal interest in just neurology in general. And uh, so that is about... I'd say pre pre pandemic was like 10 to 20 hours a week, sometimes 20. And then the other half was uh, primarily playing an orchestra. And so uh, I have a job uh, with the ballet here in Seattle. I previously played in a air quotes, full-time orchestra in Texas. Uh, and I've been combining both movement and music uh, for, I guess it's seven years now. So kind of in that context, but I find it really enjoyable to work with both musicians and non-musicians and I don't necessarily want to teach movement full time. I enjoy the interplay of doing both. I think I'm the most rewarded when I am performing, but I'm also teaching to some degree. 
Yeah, it's excellent. And you started this whole blog site called Musicians Health Collective, supporting the health of musicians and normal people. I like that. (laughs) crack up. I also really like your logo, um, both on your personal website and on your blog. I don't know. I just really dig it. But anyway, I really enjoy this site because you have all of these topics that you discuss about different things like hearing loss and beta blockers and shoulder health and just all these topics that I encourage everybody to please check out because you just have so much information here and you have resources and just so much that I feel like there's this like big hole with musicians and taking care of our physical health as well as our mental health. And I love how you are tackling all these different facets that I I feel like need to be addressed even more and, and taken more seriously in our profession. Yeah, thank you. The blog has kind of a funny starting story. Um, So without sounding like a complete narcissist, uh, I happened to win the first orchestra audition I won, and I was not expecting to do that. And so it was Mm. kind of like, oh, okay, so I guess I'm going to move to San Antonio now. Okay, cool. Uh, What do I do for the next six weeks until my contract starts? Because I don't really want to practice a whole lot because I just won an audition. Take a break. Um, So that's kind of how the blog started in uh, winter of 2014, because I just had all this time on my hands and um, that's how it happened. And by then I had probably done, I don't know, a lot of yoga training and some biomechanics and anatomy training. So there's definitely a difference between newer stuff and older stuff, but the older stuff tends to be very sciencey and biomechanics-y and I probably should revise a bunch of it anyways, but uh, I also wrote a lot in my first two years and I would often write uh, before work, which which sounds strange to people, but I wasn't teaching as many private clients then. I was just teaching group classes. And so I wasn't necessarily teaching 20 classes a week. It would probably be more like six or eight. So I just had more time to write. I just wrote all the time. So there's just a ton of blogs, I think, from the early few years, just because I had a fair amount of time to just write all the things I was learning and wanted to kind of talk about. Yeah. And another thing that I, I really love is you're not only tackling like health issues. Um, your Instagram is quite popular and I love it because <laughs> you, you tackle so many other things. You talk about social justice issues. You talk about issues in music education. You talk about mental health. You talk about emotional health, physical health. You, you tackle all these ideas and I don't know, just the way you present it and everything that you're saying, I like totally resonate with. I'm always sharing your stuff on the podcast Instagram story because I'm like, yes, Kaylee, this is so true. So how did you, um, when you were developing this online present, can you offer like any sort of advice for anybody who's trying to, you know, maybe is really passionate about a certain topic in music and is trying to create more of an online or social social media presence? Do you have any advice as things that have worked for you um, to promote yourself in that way? Oh man, I could, I could complain about all the things I hate. I, so with the blog, <laughs> I did not, that was like a, a magical accident. I never yeah. have paid for advertising. I have never had targeting ads um in fact sometimes the blog like blows my mind like I won't write for a couple of months because I get busy or I'm taking an audition and there'll be like a record of readers reading something from like seven years ago it's very weird uh <laughs> and I, I don't totally understand how the SEO worked out the way it did so some of that is uh, is freakishness that I have no uh just like happy accent Instagram, I appreciate you saying that I'm, I'm popular. Ironically, I mean, I have like 3,500 people that follow me. It's not anything huge, but uh, it, no, I think if you 
convey information that is accurate and that you are passionate about, I think it will be received by an audience. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of it is trusting in the content that you are providing and being as authentic and honest as you can. I think there is a lot of disingenuousness online, especially in the last year, because everyone is so desperate to have a big following and a big TikTok and make a lot of money online. And if I'm really honest, I don't really care about that stuff because I don't primarily make my money online. I mean, I teach people in person and I teach Zoom, but I'm not here trying to sell a $2,000 online course. That's not Mm -hmm. my ML. So I I think that's part of it is like, what is your purpose? Why are you doing it? Um, That I think that's part of it. I, I also, I would generally not take advice from business influencer types because there's a lot of just like formulaic crap out there that annoys me to no end like writing inspirational quotes and posting them on instagram i mean yes that might get you a lot of likes but it just annoys me to no end because it's from a business playbook and and some of the other things that kind of drive me nuts are like perfect uh perfect headshots like alternating you'll see this like perfect curated instagram of like inspirational quotes and beautiful headshots. And I'm like, we're in a pandemic. I don't look like my headshots right now. I don't really (laughs) care. I haven't had a haircut in a year. I generally put on a lot of makeup for Zoom calls and uh, it's kind of okay. I'm kind of okay with that state of affairs. But like, uh, I think some of the, just the like normal internet tactics annoy me. So I don't do them if I can. And that, and I'm also, I've always been somewhat blunt, I I think in the sense of like, I'm always annoyed when I uh, aren't saying what I feel authentically, because I'm worried about pissing someone off. So I I think that's part of it. And it's not that you need to come out guns blazing and say like, don't do this, you're a terrible person, but just be like, there are other ways to communicate than shaming people, which is a really big internet tactic, which I am not a fan of. So I, I think it's this like fine line between being authentic, believing in the message that you have, continuing to learn more, because I think that's part of it is if you're constantly learning and engaged, that's great. If you're like repackaging the same stuff for eight years, I think that's a problem. And, you know, not going out of your way to like attack a specific individual, but if things are problematic, I think you should say something. Yeah, and I, I think you brought up some really good points. Um, I think there's there's so much benefit in social media and, you know, being online. And there's also a lot of negatives as well. And like you were bringing up like the whole pandemic, like everybody's putting these amazing pictures out and like they put like on a full face of makeup and I'm sitting there like, you didn't leave the house today. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. my And the um, lighting in my house is bad. I want to make that clear. Like I, I do most <laughs> of my stuff in my teaching studio, which is not in my house. And like, I, I don't know how everyone's house looks so nice. Like my house has got like books everywhere, dog hair and like not great lighting. I, I don't know what people are doing. It's like magical, weird, fictitious life. Yeah, it's, it's hard because I feel like people don't want to present their authentic selves um, on social media, which is, you know, you're talking about like being authentic. I, I don't, I think a lot of people try to put the most perfect moments of their life on social media. Oh, absolutely. And so the, the issue that comes with the mental health aspect of social media is that we're always comparing ourselves to what everybody else is doing. 
Um, and I think especially in this time with all of us kind of like holed up in our houses and not able to really do much, I think that's even worse now um, yeah. that people are preparing themselves what they're doing. Oh, this person's preparing for this job. Oh man, I, I must be, you know, blah, 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 musician. Or this person is, you know, taking on this opportunity. What am I doing? And we're always like comparing ourselves to that, whether it's career wise, how we physically look, what our health state is that issue of comparison is a major problem with social media. So I think we all have to just keep in mind that everybody is um, putting forward best moments of their life and <laughs> everybody yeah, still has those moments. Curated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great. highly curated to, to represent a certain facet of your life. Uh, and I think that that may also be why I don't have 25,000 followers is because I don't make an effort <laughs> to have yeah. these like beautiful headshots because I don't look great when I wake up at six in the morning and I'm kind of okay with it. And I, you know, like life moves on, but like, and I, and I think part of it too, is that the internet likes beautiful pictures. So I think those are also boosted in the algorithm, Mm -hmm. like beautiful photographs. I think generally, no matter what, I think just tend to do well. Um, And I don't really care. (laughs) I don't have time for that shit. (laughs) I've got other things to worry about. And I think part of it too, is I, have never built either of of my internet presences upon the ego-based things of what I'm doing with my musical life in the sense of, um, yes, I have won some auditions and yes, I have lost some auditions, but that's generally not the the backbone of what I'm talking about. Like I'm not uh, sharing hundred day of practice videos because that's not, I have no problem with those videos, but that's just not what I'm doing. It's Mm -hmm. different. It's a different thing. And, um, when I show things about practicing or even like the work I do with kettlebells, it's generally in my stories and then it goes away and we move on. Like it's something I, I mention just so people know that I do actually practice the viola and I do strength train. So I know a little bit of what I'm talking about, but like I, I haven't, you know, built this entire internet realm based on my personal achievements with the viola or the way that my body looks. I'm not selling my body. I'm not selling a lifestyle. I'm not selling uh, a look, you know, I, I, that's just not, that's not part of what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I agree. Um, yeah, I, I feel like yeah, you do have a point in that. I feel like there's this weird algorithm with beautiful people and beautiful pictures that end up yes. just being promoted but I I do agree just looking at your presence on social media I think you're you're you come across as more like not ego but like selfless like you're you're there as a service to help people um and to display your ideas and say you know this is what I'm about this is what I do and this is how I help people um and I I think that 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 is honestly we need more people like that in the world (laughs) that that's their social media and that's what they revolve around um instead of the whole me 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 mentality yeah, I would love that too. I, I, I mean, I have a couple of friends that I basically just complain about horrible internet things all the time. But like, <laughs> I think even in the musician health space, there are a lot of false claims. There are people who still um, build their brand on shaming or or their personal successes. Like, I recovered from this injury, therefore I can help you recover from this injury. And I'm like, that's not actually wow. how this works, buddy. Um, there's a lot of things like that, that I find really, uh, questionably immoral or just not in great faith for the consumer. Yeah. And you bring up a good point of performance related injuries. Do you have, cause I know you, you, you work with a bunch of individuals in, in different ways. Do you have like a pretty large clientele of people that 
have had performance related injuries and what has that been like for you? Mm. I would say people that I work with, I have one or two people that have had significant playing related injuries. I have a lot of people that have just had like something happen and then they get better and we move on. Like I'd say a temporary thing that may or may not be related to their musical instrument. Um, so I do have that perspective. I will say in general, musicians have emailed me since I started the blog with really specific questions. Like I have bursitis, what should I do? And I, I'm terribly boring. I'm sure I could sell some kind of something and try to make money, but I always tell them to go to a clinician. If they have some kind of big pathology that they haven't had checked out, uh, then I want them to go to a doctor first. That's really what it, it doesn't matter if it's a PT to me or a doctor, but just some kind of something. If you're sending me an email and you've never seen somebody, I'd like you to see somebody first and, uh, and just make sure that exercise is cleared for you because that's one of the things that I think gets a little bit muddy for all sorts of people in this space, whether it's somatics, like someone teaches Alexander technique or Feldenkrais or body mapping or whatever, or someone's in a fitness component. I, I just want to make sure that if a musician says like my shoulder hurts and it hurts after 30 minutes of playing, I want to make sure that they can do whatever it is I'm asking to do. And this is a, still an issue. And it, you know, it, it comes up still almost every year, a couple times with clients that or people that want to be my client and then they won't go to a doctor. Yeah. Yeah. And you kind of explore different topics related to physical health and being a musician and, and the science behind a lot of things. And I think your most recent one that I've seen um, was you were addressing vision training and integrating that into music. So can you talk a little bit about your work and some of your research into this topic and what is vision training? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm actually doing a, a workshop on this at the end of the month on the internet. I'm actually selling something, but oh. uh, really just looking at vision vestibular health and how it affects musicians. And so the logic for this comes from a couple different clients that I've had where they've had perpetual neck pain. They've had uh, multiple concussions just for folks that don't know uh, multiple concussions are connected with a lot of different, I'd say, symptoms or issues in both musicians and normal people, normal athletes. Whether it's a, if you if you know about the issues with NFL and concussions, that's a much uh, bigger, deeper issue in terms of, uh, what's it called? I think it's hydrocephaly or there's another fancy word for what they're talking about. But even just, uh, I, you know, felt like, I fell while on a bike or fell hiking and hit my head. Things like that can actually uh, affect your vision and your balance and your experience of pain months or years after the initial incident. And so I've had a couple of musician clients who did have concussions who are having visual issues, meaning that they couldn't see the music, they couldn't, uh, they were having migraines from the kind of lighting. Uh, they were having a lot of physical pain, but no uh, identified tissue damage when they saw a physical therapist. So some of this came from working with people with concussions. Some of this came from doing a uh, neuro fitness course, basically, that I continue to take more of their courses through an organization called Z Health. But basically in your capacity to gather sensory information, uh, sensory meaning, I'd say proprioception, so awareness of where your body is in space, uh, vestibular, which is going to tell you where your position is. Vestibular system is in your inner ear. 
and then visual. Those three are basically the determiners of all the sensory information that you're receiving from your body. And so if someone has a significant weakness or a significant issue in vision or vestibular system, that's going to affect how they move. That's going to affect how they play. Uh, and for some people, it makes really profound differences to just do simple drills. Uh, in terms of, uh, let's say someone's having difficulty shifting, it's fascinating. Sometimes they can do a specific vestibular balance drill and suddenly some of those things improve. Um, so that's really cool stuff, but basically just diving into how we have other ways to gather sensory information from our environments that we are not training and we don't necessarily assess in musicians or students. So if you have a kid, I know you have a, a music ed uh, bent to the work that you're doing. If you have a student who is having difficulty reading music, we, we might think that maybe they have a visual processing delay or something like that. That's totally possible. Maybe they need different glasses, but they may have difficulty tracking music left to right across the page. And the movement for that is a saccade, so, or a saccade. Can your eyes move side to side? Can both eyes track simultaneously? Is one leading the way? Is one uh, kind of asleep at the wheel, not really doing the job needed? So there's a whole bunch of other skills that play into music. Uh, how well can you handle different lighting? How close can you see the music? How far? Um, a bunch of other stuff that goes with that as well. But there's a lot of visual information that needs to be processed in our brain in order for us to play our instruments. And we almost never talk about it. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. And you, I was reading um, the information that you had posted and, and the videos you had posted about how much all of this that you're talking about really plays into reading music and understanding what's on the page and what <laughs> you talk a little bit about posture and mm -hmm. just all the processing that happens in there. And it's just some things that we don't necessarily think about right away, either as musicians or as educators. Um, so I encourage everybody to check that out because it's really interesting information there. Yeah, sure. I said the other thing that, that's always good for people to know is that posture is mostly reflexive, meaning that your volitional control is, it's not the majority of uh, what's governing how you sit or how you stand. And so a, a lot of that is really governed by your brain, your brainstem and the information that's being sent into the brain. And some of that is positional, of course, which means vestibular and some of that is visual. So what gets also really interesting is that when people, if you know what scoliosis is, often people with scoliosis have a different, uh, have vestibular challenges. Their position awareness is challenged and no one really knows just yet whether that is part of the reason for why their spine has different uh, shapes and curves. But you start to see a really interesting connection between different, uh, I'd say, bodily representations of, of people and the stuff that's going on. So if someone has a really uh, head forward position, that might be because their vision is weak. And by slumping forward, that brings them closer to the object. And their body may not perceive that position as pain, uh, even though it wouldn't look good to a lot of people. And so that this gets into this issue is like, what is your brain prioritizing? And if your main priority is to read the music or, you know, drive a car or whatever it is, and your vision's not naturally allowing you to do that, then your body may take on a shape that's a little bit different than the air quotes norm or ideal in order to achieve that. Yeah. Yeah. That makes so much sense. Um, 
especially someone like me who can't see at all. <laughs> <laughs> I tend to, I tend to be checking my posture all the time. So I tend to lean forward too. And I saw that visual you had posted on your blog and I was like, yep, that looks like me. I mean, not as exaggerated <laughs> as that, but for sure. Um, a lot of what is going on with our brains does play into how we carry ourselves physically as well. And another feature that you have as part of your, you know, your resources and your materials um, online is your Beyond the Practice Room podcast. So can you talk a little bit about the podcast and how you started it and what is its purpose? Sure. <laughs> it's basically podcast interviews that I co-host or co-talk about too with uh, physical therapist Janice Yang, who's in uh, Los Angeles, and she's the PT for the Colburn School. And we had connect, uh, connected over the internet via email, and we ended up talking over Zoom for like three hours. And I was like, meh, we should start a podcast. <laughs> so, uh, so we did, and we've interviewed, we only have, I think, seven episodes out, because we edit them when we have time. So, yeah. um, and I also am one of those annoying people that when I edit, I try to eliminate filler words and all sorts of other stuff. So I, when I edit, I, it does take a bit of time for me personally. And sometimes I just give up on that. But uh, editing takes time in, in yep. podcast land. And uh, but yeah, so basically interviewing people in musician health, one of the gaps that we were seeing is just that there are a lot of people who interview other people and just kind of ask them what they do. And there's nothing wrong with that. But there are multiple interviews that are basically like, oh my gosh, you're a physical therapist. What does a physical therapist do? And what does an audiologist do? And neither of us really wanted to do that. We wanted to mm -hmm. actually dive into topics uh, because there are already multiple podcasts that do that or have done that. Let's say just like, what does a yoga teacher do? And I'm also, we're both in our thirties. So we're, that's not necessarily like the content that we were most inspired to create. So it's deeper dives into issues. Uh, we've had a great conversation about pain science and what musicians can learn from pain science. A great episode with uh, Molly Gabrion, who is a viola professor, but also has degrees in neuroscience and looking at how practicing and, and the brain kind of work together and how to practice more efficiently for long-term learning. And so it's just a little bit deeper dive into some of these topics that some of them I've written about in the blog, some of them I have not, but I'd say a little deeper dive in like, what do you do? And, and, you know, how did you get into doing that? And so we just wanted to have a, a little bit more content and also have content that clinicians could listen to, because that's part of it is we do have people that are not musicians that want to learn more if they are a physical therapist or occupational therapist about some of the things that are important. And so that's part of it is we have a slightly different audience, not just musicians that want to learn, you know, about how your arm works. Yeah. And that's such an excellent resource to do it too, because you're not only, it's not only you, you're also bringing in a, a health professional, a physical therapist um, to also comment on it from maybe, I know she works with musicians, but maybe from a, a non-musician standpoint as well. Um, I think that's such an interesting perspective and to have those people that actively want to learn more about the parts of the body that are engaged um, when we do play music is really cool um, that you have that resource. Everybody should go check that out as well. And then another feature you have on your blog is you have this amazing resources page um, that everyone should also be checking out that you suggest a bunch of books, um, multimedia, things that have to do with brass playing, and you suggest other blogs and podcasts and uh, voice topics um, for people to check out. 
So for you, do you have any go-to resources that when somebody comes to you and is like, Kaylee, I'm, I'm looking for some material to learn more about how I can be more healthy for myself in performance as a professional musician. Do you have a few that you just like instinctively just like rattle off to people? Like you should definitely check this out first. It depends on what people want to learn. I do think um, some of the what every musician books are really good. So if you have a violinist, what every violinist want, uh, needs to know about the body, it's a great book by Jennifer Johnson. A few, I don't have all of them. They're not for every uh, musician or not for every instrument, but the, the trombone one is really good. There's the breathing book. So there's kind of a whole subset of the body mapping world that has made these books and they're very specific to the instrument and can be really helpful in terms of understanding some of the anatomy general anatomy books uh the most fun one that i think is out there is uh the trail guide to the body super fun super cute um after that it gets a little bit more nebulous i think for me i uh the first book i ever purchased in musician health was playing less hurt by janet horvath and we actually interview her for the podcast and that episode will come out but she's a retired cellist now uh, and that's a really great primer. I think she is going to update it uh, because it's been about 10 years. And there are definitely, I think one of the big issues that I have is there's definitely old research circulating in, in different books about what musicians can and can't do. So one of the really common ones that shows up in a lot of musician books is like, you can't strength train, you can never put weight on your wrists, um, you'll hurt yourself doing X, Y, and Z. There's a lot of that. and. The research in the last 10 years doesn't actually confirm that. And so I think outside of those kind of initial books, I think some of it, it is yet to be written, I think, to some degree, because we don't necessarily have a great intersection of modern kinesiology and musicianship. And, and there's certain principles that aren't really taught. So for example, if someone does want to do a push-up and their wrists do hurt, we don't necessarily tell them to stop doing push-ups. You, you actually start to get really specific in how they're working. So you could have them do push-ups at a wall. So the load is decreased. You could have them elevate their wrists. So the amount of wrist extension is decreased. You could have them work on forearm planks so that they have more shoulder stabilization. Like the old model that I received uh, in my education was just like, well, don't do things that are going to hurt you and you're fragile and you know, mm -hmm. you can't put weight on your hands. And that's actually not really accurate. It's, it's really person specific. And I think that's just like a really small example, but basically we don't have a guide out there that has everything sort of put together all the things <laughs> it's not out there yet. <laughs> Yeah, and what a great resource that would be if we if we did have something like that. But I think you provided some good suggestions for people to start out their journey if they're looking for more information and definitely check out resources page as well um, because there are some great some great things some great material here. I know I read I've checked out a couple of these. I think I've looked at the art of practicing um, and some of those things, and I've looked at Al the Alexander technique materials before. So definitely some great resources for you to check out and definitely the brass playing ones me personally being a brass player i'm gonna have to check those out too no definitely more can be updated for brass my my closest friends are trombonists and french horns so i'm not uh, a wizard at trumpet things but uh i'll keep that in mind <laughs> yeah no i i think the ones that I'm seeing here, Lucinda Lewis is a really great resource and a really um, awesome person to talk about these topics. And you have a couple of um, her, her sources cited here. So yeah, 
I, I, I dig it. I love this resource page. I got to check out more of this stuff. Um, and I probably should update it. I don't even know the last time I updated it. So now <laughs> I'll, I'll think about that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's awesome. So I guess my last question for you is more of obviously like, you know, the hot topic to talk about all the time when it comes to musicians and their mental, physical, and emotional health right now is this time of COVID. And so I'm just wondering, I just wanted to pick your brain a little bit how have you been trying to stay mentally, emotionally, and physically healthy during this time? And what may you suggest to someone who may be struggling with some of those things right now? Sure. I uh, initially, when the pandemic happened a year ago, like today, um, (laughs) I did not really want to do anything on the internet. So, I mean, I think I, I still had Instagram. I, I still had my blog, but I, I didn't feel this like big push to sell stuff online. So I didn't. And a lot of people did, and there's nothing wrong with that, but I, I just didn't feel that push. And I instead kind of just explored other things that are not related to music. So I took a bunch of college classes. I sort of contemplated if I wanted to switch careers and go uh, be an occupational therapist or physical therapist. So I did a lot of things that were not music related for nine months of last year, and I don't regret it. Um, And then I started practicing again when I felt like practicing in the summer. So I I think part of it, I I needed a break and I have taken breaks off and on for years, like in the sense of not like three month breaks, but I'll take a couple weeks off and not feel guilty about it. And then I'll come back and be really enthusiastic. Um, So I think part of it is that this doesn't have to be the time that you practice a ton and win an audition because uh, there aren't a whole lot of auditions. And I, I think also there are always people who are motivated to practice excerpts without deadlines. I am not one of them. I'm not someone uh, who like wakes up wanting to just play this excerpt that I've played for 10 years to just see how it is. That's not, that doesn't yeah. motivate me to practice. So I haven't done that. That's been great. But I, I think also finding things that you enjoy. So one of the things I've enjoyed is just seeing how people have, maybe they've made their own arrangements. Maybe they're um, arranging pop tunes. Maybe they're playing etudes that they never learned. Maybe they're playing pieces they never learned. Maybe they're looking at composers that have kind of been ignored in the traditional canon and ways that they can bring their work you know, into the forefront. So I think finding a creative uh, practicing or, or creative outlet that you find nourishing, I think is great, even if it's not practicing your instrument. I think I've been also lucky in that I've started to have a slow trickle of performance related stuff happen. So that motivates me to practice because I am somewhat deadline motivated, but um, I'm definitely not practicing as much as if I was playing full time and I'm kind of okay with that. And it's, it's coming back to that idea of autonomy and self-motivated practice and in the sense of I'm doing things that I want to be doing for the most part. And uh, it's it's intrinsic motivation as opposed to extrinsic. So it's coming from me rather than like you have this audition in two weeks and you have to practice this and nothing else. So I, I think that's part of it. And then also just letting people absolve themselves of guilt for not practicing or not being productive. And that's something I've definitely put on uh, Instagram a whole lot, but like your, your worth as a musician is not based on if you practice a hundred days or if you practice at all, or you like, you're still a good musician if you take nine months off or if you go work or whatever. And Mm -hmm. one of the most interesting 
people, I think, to sort of think about is this, uh, there's a horn player who won the uh, San Francisco Symphony job like a year ago, March, February, named Mark Almond, who also uh, has an MD. He was a doctor in the UK, um, mm. which is super cool. You should look him up if you don't know him. Anyway, uh, since the pandemic happened, he's basically doubled down on uh, being an immunologist researcher because he doesn't have the, he has a European MD, so he can't practice in the States, but he's just been doing research on COVID uh, in, in the Bay Area and, and he still practices the horn, but he, he's had some great conversations about this because this is someone at the top level orchestrally, great player and you know, has multiple interests and it, you know, is doing something else right now. And he's excited to go play the horn again, but this is just what he's doing. And, and he's helping other people through his work. And uh, so I think that's part of it is like, you can be a fantastic musician and have another job, have other interests. It doesn't take away from your value or your skill set. Yeah, that's, that's a great point to make. And I think that's something that everybody can reflect on, especially during this time, embracing that creativity. And you're talking about the intrinsic motivation to practice or, or to not practice. And it's okay if you take a break. I myself have not had as many musical opportunities right now as I normally would. And so I'm not playing as much as I normally would. And at first I kind of felt pretty guilty about it. Like even just being a, even being a band director, I was like, oh, I feel guilty. I'm not playing my trumpet as much as I normally do. But it also has been nice to just like take a step back from like that daily grind of practicing and really like think about like what I enjoy out of music and what I get out of playing my instrument and not the the stress or the guilt of, you know, not practicing, but to find out like, hey, this is what I actually enjoy about playing the trumpet. This is why I do it. It's a good reminder of that when you take that step back for sure. And I think sometimes musicians don't actually remember that because it's not something that comes up that often when you're in this constant grind or cycle of doing work. I think I think that can actually go very much dormant. So perhaps it's a good reminder that people should have a reason that they enjoy doing this. Because what we do is kind of bananas. We sit in rooms by ourselves with <laughs> no other humans. We record ourselves. We listen to it. I mean, we do it over and over again for years. So I mean, hopefully you enjoy some aspect of creating sound in your own body, in your own space uh, without other people because we're, if you're in it now, you're in it for the long haul. You're going to be doing mm -hmm. this to some capacity for the next 20, 30, 40 years. So hopefully you enjoy some aspect of it, even if it's not practicing every day. Yeah, exactly. Completely agree. Kaylee, I want to thank you so much um, for giving us your time, for talking about your experiences and some of the topics that you're really passionate about. I think relating our overall health to music and this idea of movement is so important and is, is so needed frankly, in order to, to keep our profession alive and all of our musicians happy. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you so much for, for uh, asking me and having me and having great questions. Yeah.